Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the judicial temperament. So, Richard, we turn here to uh, an evergreen topic, the role of judges. We're at the start of a presidential election cycle right now, and of course one of the questions that that always engenders is what kind of judges a president might put on the bench. We tend to focus on the Supreme Court, but the president gets to make appointments all throughout the federal judiciary. And you know, we tend to talk about this in terms of, of personality traits. You hear references quite often to that concept of the judicial temperament. But are there more concrete things that presidents should look for? Are there certain skill sets or backgrounds that are better fits for the court than others? Well, I think on the question of skill sets and backgrounds, I would follow a principle which stressed a certain degree of diversity. And, and by that, I mean different kinds of professional backgrounds before going on to the court. Uh, one of the things that's quite striking about most recent judicial appointments at the federal level is that they tend to come from people who have had government jobs um, of one form or another, been academics, sometimes in activist careers of one sort or another. Uh, what seems to have fallen out of favor is appointing people who are genuinely private lawyers, by which I mean the people who litigate ordinary contract and torts disputes, the people who put together complex corporate deals and simple home transactions and have some kind of a commercial sense of what's going on. And I think it's a mistake to try to run a judicial system unless you have people who are very good at understanding and putting the building box together. Now, why do I feel that? And I think there are two reasons about it. One is that a lot of these transactions still come before the courts. It is always something of an irony when you have the Supreme Court nominations. Uh, these people decide 80 or 90 cases a year in every conceivable area. Um, and once every four years, they have an abortion case. And once every two years, they have an affirmative action case. And nothing else seems to get discussed on these hearings unless today it's Citizens United or so forth. But there's just a huge amount of quote-unquote routine business, all of which is immensely important on such questions of how it is that you operate the Food and Drug Administration, what degree of discretion you give to the National Labor Relations Board, how you define fraud under the Securities Act and so forth. And if you have judges who are not sensitive to some of these kinds of commercial issues, um, they're going to get it wrong. You don't want everybody to come from this kind of background, but I think at this particular point it's been short-sighted. And, and so what happens is the diversity means that you get better deliberations because you have people from more points of view, and there's somebody who can actually take leadership on some of these particular issues. Otherwise, they tended to get you know delegated to clerks of one kind or another who may be perfectly conscientious, may even get it right. But it's one thing to be a clerk, and it's another thing to be somebody who really knows these kinds of stuff. So I think you, you want to do that sort of thing. Then the question is on the issue of temperament, and in addition to the skill set, it's extremely important that people know how to talk to one another. One of the things that happens in this ever more complicated market for clerks for justices is the justices are, and judges are all exceedingly aware of how important chemistry inside the chambers is in order to put out a good work product. And that's also important in the deliberations that take place 
amongst the judges themselves. And so you don't want to have loose cannons out there, people who are deliberately fractional. You want to basically try to get people who have known how to cooperate and work in complex institutions. So in that sense, I think the judicial temperament really matters. How you identify it in particular cases is, I think, very difficult. It's extremely hard to do through the confirmation process in the Senate. My guess is I would count more on the presidents for trying to vet people uh, to make sure that they have these particular kinds of skills. And then the other thing which I think one really sort of should understand today is that excellence no longer seems to be an obvious requirement to go on the United States Supreme Court. Um, I think it's harder to have legal giants now than it was perhaps 75 or 100 years ago. But I'm always struck about the fact that if you start giving me a list of people who were put on earlier on, whether by Democrats or Republicans, say in the 1930s, you get a lot of household names coming up there. You get you know, Felix Frankfurt, maybe not a great judge, but surely perhaps the most prominent academic at the time of his appointment. Benjamin Nathan Cardozo was appointed, surely one of the great judges in the first half of the 20th century. Charles Evans Hughes was appointed twice to the United States Supreme Court and probably had one of the two or three most distinguished resumes of a public servant in this country. He did everything. He was a great private lawyer, he was secretary of state, he was governor of New York, he was president of the American Bar Association, he was a prominent Supreme Court litigator. I mean, it's just hard to imagine people of that kind of skill set being appointed because the interest groups um, can engage in a kind of savagery uh, that were applied against Bob Bork, a highly flawed candidate, but somebody of real intellectual distinction, who was laid low by the inside-outside attack, um, to which he simply did not, given his own brittle personality, know how to respond. And I think, in effect, that this whole willingness to put people under that kind of a microscope will drive away some thoughtful people. It's also the case, I think, that the world's a lot bigger place today. There are fewer mountains that have been unclimbed. It's harder for people to have the kind of intellectual dominance that you would associate with uh, people of that generation. There are some very senior members of the um, circuit courts who have great distinctions, Steve Williams, Dick Posner, Frank Easterbrook on the conservative side and so forth, and you know, John Newman. Uh, there are a lot of these people, Diane Wood, I think are really very, very good judges. They're all over 60. And you know, the younger judges, it's harder to do this because I think it's just harder to stand out in a world in which you have um, so many people. So uh, between bad selections processes, a, a kind of a maturation process, um, you, you worry about whether or not the average quality of, of judges are going down. Um, I know many fine judges who've been appointed, so I, I don't want to say that there's an alarm uh, going on in this particular case. But if you're talking about you know, sort of defining judges, I think it's harder for people who have real intellectual distinction to get appointed to the Supreme Court today, because if they have a viewpoint, it's certainly going to be a thing which would be held against them by many people with opposite ideological convictions, true on both sides of the aisle. Does that emphasis on the broader body of work that a judge brings with them that you described a moment ago, does that argue against the idea of presidential litmus tests, of having sort of these single sort of drop-dead issues where you have to get the right answer or you're not going to consider someone? Oh, I think litmus tests are always terrible, um, particularly since they cover a grand total of one-tenth or one percent of the total workload and ignore everything else. And so, you know, an idea that a president has to or appoint only somebody who is in favor of overturning Citizens United, right, which is one of the arguments there, it's an absurdity. 
I mean, first of all, there are lots of other cases that are involved. And secondly, what it does is it shows that anybody who makes that position doesn't understand that there are actually arguments on the other side of the case. And I would be quite happy to debate anybody because I think Citizens United was a well-reasoned opinion. I think it's uh, the Scalia concurrence and the Roberts opinion. I think are really quite good in terms of what they're on. The Stevens opinion in that case was dreadful. I don't say that about Stevens all the time. I thought he was right in Heller on guns and that Scalia was wrong, which means that, you know, I'm not just a lefty or a right-wing guy on these things. Uh, um, but no, I, I think it's just a real, real mistake. And, you know, when you start to see the kind of abuse that gets hurled on judges, the majority in the Hobby Lobby case, it's just unreal. Um, and again, that was a decision that was rightly decided, and the dissent of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with all respect, was exceedingly weak and unfocused and wrong on every particular, as best I can tell. Now, I may be wrong, uh, but I'm certainly prepared to put up a fight against any and all comers on these things, and to somehow to treat the thing as though it's a self-evident truth and to curse out the justices who disagree with you is, in fact, a huge civil disservice. And it's not just at the appointment process that we get this. It's gang warfare on, on average, one or two decisions that come down each term, and it's completely inappropriate sort of behavior. Um, you can disagree strongly with people without engaging in abusive epithets at this point. I mean, and look, I mean, to give you but another example on this, you've got a presidential nominee like Bernie Sanders being called a racist at a Seattle rally. I mean, what's wrong with the way in which we start to do our, our gang warfare today is that people just don't sit back and start to ask themselves whether their behavior is appropriate. And litmus tests are a perfect way to intensify partisan behavior and should be strongly discouraged on both sides. Richard, I want to harken back to a conversation that you and I had, I believe on the air a long time ago, in which you explained to me the rationale for why you never went into government work. It's an interesting set of considerations and it does have implications for the type of people that we get on the bench and for that matter the types of lawyers that we get all throughout government. So explain what your thought process was on well, that. Well, I mean, this is sort of complicated, but uh, the issue starts around 1980. I'm about 37 years of age, and there's a man named Rocky Reese who is 1981, goes into the government, and he works for Reagan in the Justice Department as the fellow who's trying to gin up and find various kinds of judicial appointments. Um, it was at this time, for example, that Steve Williams got on the court and Dick Posner got on the court. And Rocky, as he was then known, was a former law professor at Texas Law School and actually knew what he was talking about. And he approached me about this particular job as to whether or not I would want a position of this sort. This is, And my initial reaction was I've got, you know, at this point, uh, one small child at home, one on the way, um, probably more to come. Not clear that you could take the financial hit of being a justice. And then there was also, by this time, I had started to shift my focus. Uh, early on in my career, I was a highly technical common lawyer trying to figure out the internal operations of the doctrine of proximate cause, an extremely worthy endeavor, I might add. I don't regret it. But starting in the early 1980s, I started to switch to public law on the basis of this private law foundation. And I began to realize that I thought public work 
law worked on the conceit that two sets of books. Every transaction between two private parties bear no relationship to any transaction what the government does to any private person. Now, the leading case on this is a case called Willow River, where Justice Jackson, a great Supreme Court justice, makes the mistake. He says, whatever the way in which two interact- people interact on the river um, in a water law case, the government always can trump them because it has a paramount easement over everybody else. Paramount is just a word for arbitrary and capricious government power, and, and you can't do it. So as I started to work on this stuff, I began to write on the public-private law intersection. And the point of no return in my particular life came in a piece that I did for the 50th anniversary of the New Deal held at the Yale Law School, where I wrote a piece which defended the common law of labor relations against the whole set of labor statutes which were introduced in the 20s and 30s, the Railway Labor Act, the Norris LaGuardia Act, the Davis-Bacon Act, the National Labor Relations Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and so on. And, you know, this meant that I was no longer appointable anywhere. Um, No matter what (laughs) the public argument, it was all over. And I thought to myself, well, what are you going to do? You can try and be a nice gentle fellow, write about things that nobody cares about, and we really believe that there's something that's going on, don't do it. And so in 1985, the Takings book comes out and you know, declares the New Deal unconstitutional. So I'm no longer dealing with this just as a kind of a, a system of statutory law. And in 1991, there's old Joe Biden hanging my book out in front of Clarence Thomas, saying anybody who believes anything in this book um, is not worthy of sitting on the Supreme Court. And, you know, I still have an open invitation to Mr. Biden. Anytime he wants to debate anything in this book, I'm happy to do it with him. <laughs> not going to be taken up 30 years after the fact. He's got better things to do. And so what I began to realize is it wasn't just the private personal issues that mattered. Uh, the question is when you go on and become a justice, nobody's going to appoint you right off the bench to the Supreme Court. I mean, unless you have some real political conventions, and I have no political connections to either party, still have no political connections to either party. So that wasn't going to happen. So what do you want to do? And I said, I'd rather figure out and say what I think than try and uh, suppress my own instincts in the hope that somebody may be interested in thinking of me for a job that I don't want to have that much anyhow. I mean, it would be nice to be a Supreme Court justice, I suppose. My wife says, I would not want you to have that job. There'd just be too many people who would be denouncing you for too many reasons, and maybe she's <laughs> right about it. Uh, but that was essentially the arc. And so what happened is after the early Reagan period, uh, my own intellectual evolution meant that I was persona non grata with respect to both political parties. There was, I might add, a truly despicable and deplorable story not the story, but the trappings of the story uh, that Jeff Rosen wrote on April 17, 2005 in the New York Times. The article was a conscientious effort to figure out what my beliefs were. The headlines put by the New York Times were an effort to kill my Supreme Court nomination. They had a block of ice on the cover, and they said the Constitution on ice, and the clear implication was I loved the pre-1937 cases because of things like Plessy v. Ferguson on racial segregation and so forth. And I realized they put a series of pictures in there, and the best remark that somebody had about these pictures was the good thing about them is if somebody wanted to kill you and they only had these pictures to go by, they'd never be able to find you in a crowd of three people. Um, (laughs) It was like that. You know, you see what goes on in these kinds of cases. The New York Times refused to publish any letter that I wrote or any of my friends wrote on my behalf with respect to this stuff um, and basically thought it was sort of high-minded reportorial situation. Poor Jeff Rosen. 
I mean, he was kind of astonished by what they did with his piece because there's nothing in the text that bore anything relationship to the graphics and the pictures and everything else on the headlines that they put out there. And, you know, who needs it um, in terms of that? I mean, you know, somebody said, well, you're going to sue these guys. I said, suing a New York Times is like putting your head into a meat grinder. Uh, they will simply republish the libel at every opportunity. And so, you know, 10 years afterwards, if you give them a big slap on the rear, I think they fully deserve it. They behaved in a despicable fashion under that particular time. And I give them the full right of counter speech. So final question. In the wake of some of the controversial decisions from the Supreme Court this year, especially the Obamacare ruling and the gay marriage ruling, we've heard all kinds of proposals for reforming the court, everything from judicial retention elections to stripping them of their jurisdiction in certain cases. I wonder when you look at the judicial branch, we can focus on the Supreme Court, although you may have ideas for the lower courts too. Are there structural reforms that you'd like to see, changes to how the institutions work that you think would make them function better? Well, I mean, the only one that I can think that makes any sense would require a constitutional amendment and would impose term limits on the justices. And, you know, that means 18 years and out. And if you look at the current Supreme Court crop and figure out, you know, Who's gone under this situation? Um, it includes Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Justice Thomas, right? I think he got five of them. Um, and they split in a bipartisan way. And that might help. Um, in terms of the substance, I, I don't think there's a thing in the world that you can do structurally uh, to change the kinds of positions they take. I mean, it's perfectly responsible for people to write things pro and con on these decisions. Um, I think, in effect, that King v. Burwell was wrong. takes a great mind to analyze the obvious, and uh, Justice Roberts had one or two decent arguments on his side, but by and large, I think what he did is he rescued Congress, which had picked a a uh, very bad scheme for strategic reasons. The same-sex marriage case, as far as I can tell, is pure fiction. And I speak as somebody who supports gay marriage. I mean, I, this is not what the issue is about under the circumstances. I don't know what you do in order to go after that. And, you know, then you look on the other side. I don't know if I'm a liberal what I do about Citizens United. And people have proposed a ghastly constitutional amendment to start to deal with it. But clearly, nobody understands how this thing is going to work if you try and reverse Citizens United and protect the freedom of the press at the same time, and then reflect on the fact that Citizens United is not a business corporation, but it's essentially was a political organ of a bunch of people to put out a movie denouncing Hillary Clinton in her earlier run for presidency. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for this. I think robust criticism of substantive decisions is fine. I think getting presidents who take this very seriously is fine. I think there is a tendency in many cases for presidents to say, the only thing I want out of the Supreme Court is that they don't mess up the way in which I do my domestic policy. So I'll appoint anyone. It's very clear, for example, that George W. Bush, when he appointed Souter, uh, essentially took that kind of position and was sold the bill of goods by John Sununu, so the story goes, uh, that this man was a you know, stout conservative. Um, but there was no real deep analysis going on there. Um, and in fact, as you go through all of these cases, there is a constant tendency on the part of Republican nominees to be liberal justices. Um, and you know, I think it stopped with the Alito-Roberts appointments in 2005, right? Uh, and it's certainly, I can't think of many Democratic cases which have gone on reverse. Uh, 
little bit about Justice White with respect to criminal procedure, but he was the most left-wing justice on the Supreme Court on labor relationships, for example, even including uh, Justice Brennan. So no, I, I don't see any kind of fix. Uh, the only comfort I get is other people have to chafe under these decisions. I at least have the opportunity to write about. <laughs> thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. <laughs>